we're just in this first week of our series that we do every year called Stories from the Seats, where we have ordinary people tell their ordinary life stories about an extraordinary God and his impact and hand on their life through the years. And so this morning, um, I'm gonna introduce Jean Bennett. I just found out from Jean um, this morning that when she and her husband Scott got married and became a blended family, they then immediately had eight children between the two of them. And that just always kind of takes my breath away to think about that kind of parenting. Um, it's amazing. And so when you listen to Jean's story, I want you to pay attention to a few things because they might hit home for you. Pay attention to her struggle with perfectionism. Pay attention to some of the losses that she suffered along the way that she's brave enough to come up here and talk about. But even more powerfully, pay attention to when and where and how God shows up for Jean and through Jean. And pay attention to the beautiful lessons that she has learned at this stage of her life about the power of God's ability to redeem what feels really broken. So Jean, come on up. And as my kids like to say, when I'm about to talk or do something, they always say, buckle up. And so uh, I would say that same thing right now to all of you when Jean is uh, here to share her story, buckle up, because it's gonna be good. Thanks. Good morning. I was born in Waterloo, Iowa, March 13th, 1954, the third of four girls. My parents came from very different backgrounds. My dad from a strict, orderly religious home. My mom from a chaotic, irreligious one. My parents were faithful church attenders, taking us to church and Sunday school every week. However, we didn't talk about faith in our home. We didn't pray beyond the God is great variety, nor did I observe my folks reading a Bible. As a result, I grew up and lived many years, rarely giving any thought to faith at all. My parents modeled and instilled many good values in me, yet I personally made no connection between good values and faith. My first decade was a safe time, both in our family and culture. However, two family events in those years rocked my world. When I was in kindergarten, Dad lost his job. Mom returned to her pre-marriage employment. It drastically changed our home, adding much tension. Mom was now basically working two full-time jobs and was weary. Even after Dad found new employment, she continued to work until retirement. The second event occurred when I was almost seven. My little sister, Jenny, was born. Up to this point, I had been the baby of the family. Now this absolutely adorable little thing stole my spot, the hearts of my sisters, and my father's lap. And I had to share my bedroom with her. I failed to see the win in this for me. Another incident that impacted me greatly occurred when I was in first grade. My teachers had specialists from you and I come and evaluate me. Mom and Dad had said I could read the newspaper, at least in part, when I was three, and by first grade I was reading at a high school level. I clearly remember being humiliated, being kept after school for this evaluation. Only naughty kids were kept after school. More importantly, it was the beginning of a big gap between my peers and me that lasted for years and created many dilemmas for my parents. I grew to understand this better as I experienced the same dilemmas with one of my children. My second decade was characterized by change. New schools, new friends, new home, and new hormones. I went through puberty very early, adding to my out-of-sync development and widening the gap with peers. My father tended to pull back from physical touch, one of my love languages, when I developed. I understand it now, 
Yet it left me more vulnerable to boys and with confusion in my developing identity. We had less church involvement as a family, and with our culture in cataclysmic upheaval, many former absolutes began to seem arbitrary and obsolete. Male-female roles in relationships were in turmoil. Right at the time of development, I needed the most clarity and stability. With hindsight, I now recognize my primary love language is words of affirmation, and my family didn't do this, partly due to family culture, partly due to generational norms. I also tend to break the mold, tended to break the mold of beyond reproach compliant behavior at school and elsewhere that my older sisters had cast. As my mother recently said, upon observing a little girl all dressed up for her grandpa's funeral, hop on a bike and tear around, that looks like Eugene. Linda would never have done that. Judy wouldn't have done it, but would have wanted to, and you just didn't care. It was actually very healing to hear her delight. I wasn't particularly naughty, just mischievous, so I did get words, the kind a child gets when in trouble. As my sense of not measuring up grew, my external efforts to overachieve ramped up. In high school, I did it all, valedictorian of 700, national merit finalist, swing chorus, homecoming queen, blah, blah, blah. Then off to college. My parents have since told me they were almost hoping I would come home from my first semester at the U of I in pre-med with a big fat C. But oh no, I instead returned with all A's and on the verge of an emotional breakdown. I transferred back to UNI and bootstrapped through. At the same time, my parents went through a rough patch in their marriage, marking me deeply. My senior year, I transferred back to the University of Iowa hospitals to complete my degree in medical technology with the intention of proceeding on to medical school. After only two weeks in the hospital, I met Tim, a surgical resident. We began dating. After many relationships with guys, I had finally met one as intelligent, confident, strong-willed, and energetic as I. We never discussed such topics as future children, goals, faith, or values, nor did I deeply question the fact that he had been briefly married and divorced in medical school. We had much in common, a lot of fun, and so rather blindly forged ahead into marriage. So, instead of pursuing my plan of no marriage, no children, and becoming a doctor, I married a doctor and had a lot of children. The next decade for me was filled with babies and the stresses of my husband's training. The demands of a surgery residency and subsequent cardiac surgery fellowship were almost inhumane. His stressors and those that babies bring to a marriage made for challenging times. I was pregnant two months after our wedding. With hindsight, I now recognize it probably wasn't ever a normal healthy pregnancy, and by the seven-month point, it was determined the baby had died. Labor was induced, and while the loss was painful, I did very little processing and again bootstrapped ahead. Sarah was born in September of 1978, followed by Timmy in April of 80. I discovered I adored being a mother. I had inadvertently fallen into my calling for that season. We moved to Mason City in late December 1981. Tim joined a general surgery group, and I was thrilled. It was a family-friendly group with a more tolerable schedule, very supportive and in a welcoming community. I was almost eight, month preg eight months pregnant when we moved. As my due date neared, I noticed a considerable slowing of fetal movements. I thought it best to have it checked out. After a non-stress test that my doctor incorrectly read as normal, I was sent home. A week or two later, I was frantically being prepped for an emergency C-section. My foggy memory of waking up 
is Tim at my bedside, tearfully breaking the news that our daughter, Grace Elizabeth, had been born alive, yet needing resuscitation and with non-reactive pupils. She died shortly after birth. Nothing prepares you for such moments. Her death was a devastating loss on several levels, obviously the loss of our beautiful little girl. Perhaps as devastating long-term was our poor navigation of the loss as a couple. It added many bricks in the wall between us. We had no common faith foundation, no compassionate friends type of group, and both carried false guilt. I once again pretty much soldiered on. Daniel was born in June of 83. I was now resigned to C-sections, and I was content to be a family of five. Yet on February 7, 1986, four years to the day from our baby girl's death, William James was born. When asked pre-op if I was certain I wanted a tubal ligation if this baby wasn't okay, I replied, I wanted those tubes cut, bit, braided, burned, or whatever else was necessary to bring a halt to pregnancies. After six in nine years, I was exhausted and maxed out. My fourth decade was busy and challenging. We built a home in the country and proceeded to add on and remodel numerous times, all the while being buried with rearing four active, intelligent, and strong-willed children. My extended family always described our family of six as all chiefs and no Indians. Tim's career exploded and he became busier and busier, largely self-inflicted. He grew increasingly restless and distant, pouring all of his energy into working kids. In 1989, he began a cardiac surgery program in Mason City. As the only cardiac surgeon for two years, he was on call 24-7, grueling for us all. He was exhausted yet thriving. The kids grew increasingly father-hungry, and I was dying on the vine. Several other troubling dynamics existed. I believed in a marriage-centered family, Tim in a child-centered one. This led to the second dynamic. Tim undermined me as a mother in subtle and not-so-subtle ways, especially with our daughter. My unhealthy coping response was to become increasingly rigid and controlling, especially in the arena of my diet and exercise. I would never have been officially diagnosed as a full-blown anorexic, but I embodied many of the attitudes and behaviors of one. In spite of the hindsight perspectives I now have regarding the evolution of marital difficulties, there were also many, many great things about our family. My kids have an abundance of treasured memories of a safe, great childhood, rich with family and extended family bonds in shared life. As a result of some very poor decisions I made as my inner life deteriorated, I began to see a counselor. This required courage and strength on my part, and Tim was not a happy camper. As I slowly began to address my issues, he pulled back farther still. I was beginning to have faith sparks also. We had faithfully attended a mainline church, having kids actively involved, just as I had been as a child. I had joined the choir, something I treasured then and still do. These people became a family of sorts and cared for me in dark days to come. Two big changes I made as my self-awareness grew. I learned, regardless of what happens to me, I always have a choice, and I am 100% responsible for how I respond. Secondly, I began to tell my parents I love you every time I talked to or corresponded with them, and I began to hug them. It was a radical departure from our normal at that point and led to wonderful long-term changes. <clears throat> hmm. 
Yes, my fifth decade was one of devastating loss, miraculous new life, and second chances. I had suspected other women over the years and now heard swirling rumors of Tim's involvement with another woman. When confronted, he denied them and suggested I had trust issues. Our marriage entered a horrible downward spiral. The occasional breadcrumb became disrespect and then devolved into outright contempt. It was unbelievably hard on our children. His behavior was unacceptable, yet I tolerated it. I was so emotionally beaten down and terrified. I was a woman in her 40s with obsolete job skills and four dependent children. I didn't see any good options. I can honestly say, even at this point, I never thought we would divorce. It never occurred to me. Yet in late 1994, Tim told me he was filing and would be moving out. Three dear men challenged him, and they will always number among my heroes. I couldn't believe he was choosing this route. We had huge problems, and we'd hurt one another deeply along the way. I wanted to get help, but with his dream woman in his life, he pursued ending our marriage. January 1995 brought what remains the worst day of my life, the memory of which still brings me to my knees. We gathered the, family to the, fam we gathered the children to the family table, the hub of family life. I can still see the raw pain on the faces of my four precious children as their fathers spoke the words that altered their lives forever. When reflecting upon the shattering of our family, I often think of the nursery rhyme Humpty Dumpty. Our family had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put us together again. Yet the king could, and in his infinite grace and mercy, he eventually did. No longer a family of six, but five. As I previously mentioned, faith sparks had already begun in me. I had been attending a Sunday school class, and in that unlikely place from an unlikely source, I heard the gospel message for the first time, and that faith wasn't a religion but a relationship. My sister Linda has since told me. She tried repeatedly to walk me through the gospel. I have no memory of this. Now God had my full attention. I had made my husband, family, and perfectionism my gods, and it was time to cast down my idols. That spring, I surrendered my life to Jesus, which I have since discovered I need to do on a daily, if not hourly, basis. Again, upon reflection, I see, now see his newly indwelling power is what carried me through the next year. I continued to walk with my counselor, who encouraged me and challenged me, always holding me accountable for my choices and responses, helping me discover my part in the marriage failure, how I got to this point, and the weak spots in my character. He helped me navigate the tension between taking the high road and rolling over and playing dead. I realized it was past time for me to grow up, cease under-functioning, and assume full responsibility for all areas of my own life. This first year brought a steep, sometimes overwhelming, learning curve. I had always mowed, shoveled, and hauled the firewood. Now I needed to learn how to maintain our well, septic system, in-ground pool, my car, appliances, as well as my finances. I learned the difference between qualified and non-qualified dollars, traditional versus Roth IRAs, how to purchase my own health insurance, on and on. I became the spider and rodent capture. When it came to mice, however, I allowed myself the luxury of disposing the entire trap each time I caught one. I still do. <clears throat> I changed churches and, with the kids to a small, nurturing, evangelical one. I joined a Bible study and small group and voraciously devoured scripture and Christian radio. I learned to lean on Jesus and the people he sent my way. 
And through it all, my parents and extended family held us up in so many ways. When asked years later, the single most important stabilizing factor in these years, all my children have said grandma and grandpa and the family. They truly were Jesus with skin on, protecting us from their own personal grief and pain to help carry us through. With my counselor's support, I helped my children work on processing their grief and anger and did my best to spare them mine. I encouraged their relationship with their dad, often at great personal cost. They were hurt and angry, yet desperately needed him. Although I've disagreed with many of his decisions, Tim has always tried incredibly hard to be a good father for our kids. I am grateful. I once heard a quote, it's hard to let the fire refine you when someone else lit the match. Yet this is what happened in my life, and actually in my kids' lives too. They have since referred to the healthy changes as the gifts of divorce. God does create beauty from ashes. I had become a believer, and my kids saw dramatic changes in me. I had gained self-respect, confidence, some needed weight, and a sense of humor. I learned to forgive, and that I can do this through him who strengthens me, with a little help from my friends. Eventually, the kids all embraced Jesus as their Savior. We learned to do family in a much healthier way. Indeed, the king had put Humpty together again. We had some challenging years as everyone continued healing the dreadful tearing divorce brings. Yet through it all, God never once left me. One Sunday at our cozy little church, my kids and I were ushering. As I helped with the offering, I noticed a handsome man sitting by himself. Scott's version of the story is that I handed him the plate and said, give me the money. <laughs> Not true. We eventually began dating. May I pause a moment to say dating in your 40s is more horrifying than in your teens. And this time there were many children to consider. We tried to be wise and careful, yet stumbled many times. My biggest concern remained, how is this affecting my children? And if re-entry into the dating world is awkward for 40-somethings, it's downright gross for adolescent children to even think of their parents this way. We muddled through two and a half years of it, and by the time we married in October of 1998, my children adored Scott. Yet, in a sense, it was another loss for the kids and I. The five of us had formed a tight-knit little family. Now all of that was once more changing. I've heard it said for first marriages, it takes five to seven years to bond. For remarriage, it's eight to 12. I understand why. We had our combined eight kids, then ages 12 to 22, ex-spouses, tons of baggage, and our dramatic personal differences to navigate. Our children have been reared with very different value systems. I've often described Scots in my early years as Pink Floyd meets John Denver. You can figure out who's who. <clears throat> we have shared many wonderful times and as many challenging and painful ones. I know there have been countless days Scott wished he could give me sedatives, and there have been just as many I wished I had a cattle prod for him. Yet always in my mind's eye, I can clearly picture the image of our eight understandably skeptical children standing around as we take our marriage vows. I regret deeply that divorce is in my children's legacy, and that cycle stops here. That circle of eight has grown to 27 at present, and they are all watching. Thus far has the Lord helped us. God is good and again has brought beauty from ashes. My sixth decade was filled with endings and beginnings, painful loss and glorious gain. It brought the end of hands-on child rearing, the end of hormones, 
the end of my campaign for the Miss Congeniality Award, and the end of my need to be adored by my husband. It began my journey as a mother-in-law and grandmother. Between 2006 and 2011, all four of my children married. Between May of 2008 and October 2014, they gave me nine grandchildren. Another steep learning curve. Life has been abundant and good, yet not without challenges, including major abdominal surgeries for both my son, Will, and myself. My surgery led to one of my losses, a necessary one. Along with 10 inches of my colon, I lost my arrogance around seeing myself as the poster child of healthy living. I gained much-needed humility and a more surrendered posture toward my senior years. Within a year, I lost three dear people, an old friend to multiple myeloma, my co-grandma to ovarian cancer, and in October 2010, I lost my father. In a sense, I'd been anticipating this and grieving dad for years yet truly saying bye, goodbye was exquisitely painful. It's been a long grieving process, and I still think of him and miss him almost daily. One of God's most tender mercies to me was the gift of saying goodbye to Dad and having no regrets. All that needed to be said had been said long ago. Hurts had been forgiven and healed. In 2003, my father had a lung cancer scare. He also attended a concert in Mason City given by my niece, Allie. The speaker that night issued a challenge to all in attendance to step out and tell those we love that we love them before it's too late. Several weeks later, I found an envelope addressed to me in my father's handwriting for the first time in my life. In it was a letter from Dad telling me how proud he was of the wonderful woman and mother I was. He stated he was a read-the-instructions guy and that my sisters and I hadn't come with instructions. He asked for forgiveness for any and all shortcomings as a father, stated we were the best part of his life, his greatest accomplishment. I cried for days. I had the great privilege of receiving the Father's blessing after all these years. In an even greater gift, I realized that treasured as it was, I no longer needed it. My Heavenly Father had already given me His. I am a daughter of the King, and really knowing that has made all the difference, revolutionizing my life. Dad's blessing was icing on the cake, and the man who hadn't known how to express his love for much of his life spent his remaining years literally wiggling in delight around his girls and their families. He adored us all and left a legacy of faith and love for which I am deep, deeply grateful. I have a photo from last May that is dear to me. It tells many stories. I'll focus on one. It is my most recent photo of all my kids and grandkids, minus baby Anna, in the back row, in a purple shirt, is my children's father. We were celebrating my son Dan's graduation from Iowa State's vet school, and we always share those occasions with Tim. The hero of this story is in the back row with the cool shades, my husband. It hasn't always been easy, especially at first, but time after time, Scott has chosen grace, including Tim in countless events and outings, in essence saying, there is room at the table for you. My extended family has marveled at this. As my mom has said, it takes a big man to do this the way he has. I tell her he is a big man with a big God. Scott has loved me and my kids well, and we have all learned and benefited from much grace, healing, and forgiveness in multiple directions. We have lived in Cedar Falls for two and a half years. After Dad's death, there was a sense of urgency to begin the process of relocating closer to family. We anticipated a year to five years to sell our very large, lovely home on 20 wooded acres in the country. It took two months, with little time to figure out where we would land and get it done. 
It was hard to leave our little piece of paradise. We had used it well, literally hosting hundreds of people at a wedding, wedding receptions, birthday parties, and countless dinners with friends and family on the screen porch or in front of the wood burner. Yet we took the ridiculously quick sale as God's confirmation it was time to move on. We wait expectantly for what's next. I had the privilege of being with my father when he died, along with much of my family. As we sang Dad into glory with the words, till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand, a hush fell on the room. It was a holy moment, one I deeply treasure. After a time, I broke the silence with the words I believe God gave me. Well done, Dad. As I enter my seventh decade, I am living with a sense of urgency. I have no idea how long God will leave me on this planet. I told my children a Thanksgiving ago, my greatest desire for them and my grandkids can be summed up in two words, be there. I will do whatever is in my power to make that a certainty. And on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come, I pray the words on my lips are, bless the Lord, O my soul, worship your holy name. And I pray the words on my children's lips are, well done, Mom. Well done. Thanks. <laughs> Um, so I just want to take a minute now um, before Doug comes up and leads us in communion to pray for Jean, uh, for her courage to share her story, but also for so many of us in the room whom, whom God may have touched through some part of Jean's uh, story. So let's pray. Father, thank you again for Jean's courage, um, her willingness to tell her story um, in ways that are both honest uh, and vulnerable, um, but also to be very real about who you have been for her through the years, how you entered her life, how you were a safety net and still are that for her um, in powerful ways. I want to pray to God this morning for anyone in the room this morning who, who has faced some of the things that Jean has faced, who've struggled with perfectionism, who've walked through a divorce, who've done the hard work of blending a family. Um, I want to pray too, especially, Lord, for people in this room who, who may not have come to faith in Jesus yet. Um, like Jean came to faith as an adult, I want to pray for them as well, that this story would encourage them to take that next step of faith. I want to pray for uh, all the children who've had to sit around a table and listen to their parents break the news of, of a divorce. I want to pray that all of us would gain courage, like Jean's dad did, um, to write letters of affirmation to our children or maybe to our parents, to the people that we love, and for all of us to start telling the people that we love that we love them, because we do not know how much more time we have. So thank you for all the many facets of Jean's story and how you have worked through them in her life and how you will work through those facets in our own life as well, God. We thank you for your grace and mercy. Amen.